and welcome to Retro Game Audio. My name's Patrick. And I'm Steve. And what are we talking about today, Steve? Today, we're talking about the Nintendo Famicom's VRC7 sound expansion. That's right. And as mentioned before, we intend to do an episode on every sound expansion for the Nintendo Famicom. Uh, We've already covered the FDS, the N163, and the VRC6. Um, But what's a little different this time around is that there's actually only one game using the VRC7. Yeah, so kind of by default, this is an episode that's specifically about the LaGrange Point soundtrack, since LaGrange Point is the only game to use the VRC7 sound expansion. So we normally start off with the history of what we're talking about, but a better place to start is with a different system and company entirely. Yeah, so we've kind of been doing a lot of talking about FM lately. Uh, while many of Yamaha's uh, main FM chips were kind of like one-offs, so we talked about the OPM uh, in the last show, which is the Yamaha Operator Type M. That's kind of like its own chip and its own family. Uh, there's also like the uh, Yamaha Operator Type P, which is the OPP. They're kind of related, but they're also kind of like one-off chips. Um there's kind of two bigger, like larger families of FM, and that would be fa- the family known as OPN and the family known as OPL. We already talked about one member of the OPN family. That would be the Sega Mega Drive's YM2612, or Operator N2, or also referred to as OPN2. So that's in the OPN family. Yeah. We've also talked about one member of the OPL family. That would be the Sega Mark III's or the Sega Master System's uh ym2413 which is also known as the operator type ll or the opll so so is everyone with me so far (laughs) no no i'm lost already (laughs) yeah (laughs) so it's uh you know there's lots of names and lots of numbers here so kind of breaking this down simply the vrc7 which is what we're talking about today is a derivative of the opll or the ym2413 which we talked about um so the opll was used in the sega mark III's fm sound unit which we mentioned in our previous episode Also built into certain MSX2 2 Plus models. And was also featured on a couple arcade boards. And again, OPLL stands for FM Operator Type LL. Basically, the extra L is often implied to mean light. Uh, So it's generally considered the low-cost and light version of the OPL line of chips, um, which are already considered to be sort of like the lowest-cost solution of the FM sound family. That's right. So this... (laughs) 
<laughs> this is basically the cheapest chip and the cheapest family of chips that offer FM. But it still sounds great, obviously. The OPLL is capable of nine channels of two operator FM synthesis, or six channels of two operator FM synthesis and five channels of drums. So it has a regular FM mode, or it has a, a mode that gives you FM and five channels of drums. It has 15 presets and one patch that the user can define, but otherwise you're stuck with those preset instruments. So let's take a listen. These are the, the list of your choices for the OPLL. Yeah, but that's because, again, it's the cheapest line of chips. Um, in the nicer ones, you could have completely user-defined instruments. Um, but, you know, this is what you get with the OPLL. Yeah, I mean, and so, like, many of the models in this family had that basic capability. One thing that's kind of, I guess, part of all the OPL uh, family is uh, they all are capable of nine channels of FM synthesis or six channels of FM plus five channels of drums, just like the OPLL. Um, and I think that that's kind of one of the defining factors of this family. So again, we'll recap with an overview of what all the different chips in the OPL family are. Uh, I think it'll provide some insight into just how diverse Yamaha FM chips really are. Yeah, and it's it's cool. I found this great uh, resource on this, actually. Um, there's so many arguments and so many uh, <laughs> chip names to remember that some people on the Battle of Bits Discord, uh, XYZ, uh, Movie Movies 1, uh, M9M, I think, contributed uh, create an easy cheat sheet, and we'll link it here for further reference. It helps a lot. Oh, um, it basically, yeah. It, oh yeah, this this cheat sheet is great. It literally lists like here's the OPL family, here's everything in it, here's what it, it provides, here's the different waveforms it uses, here's what it was used in. Boom. Now you don't have to like look at a million different websites. It's like a very concise way of looking at this. So uh, thanks to them for really kind of providing and making this a lot easier, even to write for, for in this episode. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a helpful resource. This time. It's a great resource. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the first chip in the set is the Yamaha operator type L also known as the YM three, five, two, six. This was used in arcade consoles and the sound expander module for the Commodore 64. Actually, it features nine channels, like you said before, or the six plus five, you know, drum mode. Uh, and it allows you to define in instruments as you see fit. Unlike the OPLL, um, and it also has this CSM or composite sign mode, whatever that uh, is. Yeah, let's save that for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> uh, so also of note, a version of this chip was also used in MSX-Audio. Uh, that's a type of audio expansion for the MSX. Um, also known as the Y8950, which is essentially the same as the OPL, uh, but with like an extra sam sample channel of uh, ADPCM. Yeah, they're they're functionally compatible, except that the the uh, Y eight nine five zero has the ADPCM. So moving into the next chip in the family, that would be the Yamaha operator Type L two or the YM three eight one two. 
This was most notably used in the original Sound Blaster and AdLib, uh, so it's kind of iconic in that way, and also in the arcades. It features everything from the original OPL, but also allows for more waveforms, which is something we're going to talk a little bit more about during this episode. So if you have more waveforms, it's going to allow for more overall variability with sound. Um, the YM3812 uh, can also emulate stuff that was on the YM3526, so they're backwards compatible. Ah, okay. Um then there's also the Yamaha Operator Type L3, or YMF262. Uh, this was released a bit after the others, as the other chips are, you know, like the mid to late 80s. And this one's from 1992. Um, the OPL3 is the FM chip inside of the Sound Blaster 16. It's much beefier and more versatile. It features 18 channels of two operator FM, so it's basically like a, a double OPL. Um, it can also be set to create six channels of four operator FM. So basically up the quality of the FM, make it more on par with like a Sega Genesis. Um, so there's there's many more details, but we'll save it for the Sound Blaster 16 episode. Yeah, good idea. There's there's a lot. The, the data sheet on that is really long. Uh, and I guess kind of rounding out the family is the Yamaha operator type L4 or the YMF278, uh, which is an even more insane, uh, honestly, Um it's an OPL3 on steroids. You get all the features of the OPL3 and, listen to this, 24 channels of PCM. <laughs> 24. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's a lot of channels. Yeah. Um, this is actually included in Moonsound, which is actually something, a uh, cart that you can buy for your MSX standard computer, which is also insane. Like, just having... Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, this. I've heard of that before, but I didn't actually... I wasn't aware with, like, what it offered. So, yeah, yeah that's crazy. It, it, yeah, a 24 channels of PCM is, is absolutely crazy. That, yeah. That's awesome. Um, so with those out of the way, um, let's get back to OPLL, which is what this episode is supposed to pretty much be about. Yeah, I think we got carried away there with all the numbers and everything. But, you know, that's a good thing sometimes. And I think hopefully the, between that and the data sheet that we're going to attach here, that kind of clears up. Just, you know, the capabilities of these, uh, you know, even just kind of talking to people who assembled the data sheet. Well, the major reason that the sheet was created with all the FM families on it is there were so many arguments about like in the Battle of the Bits Discord about what was actually offered on each chip that someone was like, we have to stop arguing about this. We need to make a resource for this. Um, so hopefully between what we kind of did, which is uh, talk about it here and the data sheet itself, uh, there could be greater understanding about these chips. It is confusing and it's a lot of numbers. And yeah, stuff. it's a lot of names and numbers to keep straight. Um, but the takeaway is that, the, you know, it's a diverse family of chips with similar features, different iterations where they offer more features. Um, but we're going to be steering off in a direction where it's going to offer less features. Yeah. So speaking of which, how does this relate to Lagrange Point? Well, Lagrange Point uses Konami's VRC7 multi-memory controller. Um, we've talked about MMC chips before, sometimes referred to as mappers. These chips are found inside various NES and Famicom games uh, that extend the capabilities of the system by enabling the use of more programming character ROM. Some of these chips, of course, also offered uh, expansion audio. Um, as mentioned before, the VRC7's expansion audio is a derivative of Yamaha's OPLL, so it's very similar to the YM2413, very similar to the audio from the FM add-on for the Sega Master System. Uh, but there are some differences. The real key difference is that the VRC7 only offers six two-operator FM channels instead of nine like the OPLL. So, and it's also missing the drum channels. So it's kind of 
like it's stuck in drum mode, but you don't get the drum channels. You get just the six FM channels from that. In addition mm-hmm. to that, it also has different preset voices, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and so let's take a listen to the preset uh, patches of the VRC7. So there is something kind of strange with the preset voices of the VRC7, though. Uh, what we just listened to is the presets run off of the actual Lagrange Point cartridge using Steve's rig, uh, so the sound was accurate. But if we sampled this from emulation, the voices would be a little different. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah, and it's not like it's not a situation where they'd be different just because the emulation quality is bad, um, but it, it's actually just because the actual data for these preset voices is unknown. So when you hear the Lagrange Point NSF or other VRC7 NSFs in emulation, it's using instrument data that's an approximation. Someone basically had to manually guess an experiment to try and recreate them. That sounds like a lengthy, <laughs> lengthy process. <laughs> but why is that exactly? Like, why would they have to do that? So uh, as our friend uh, Adrian, also known as I'm a Trackman, explained, with the way the VRC7 die was made, the actual binary data for the ROM is extremely hard to read, bordering on impossible. So while there are exact OPLL patches, the same can't be said for the VRC7. So we have a comparison here of the presets recorded properly off of hardware compared to an NSF played by NSF Play. You'll hear each patch back-to-back with the hardware recording first. Patch number one. Patch number two. Patch number three. Patch number four. Patch number five. Patch number six. Patch number seven. Patch number eight. Patch number nine. Patch number 10. Patch number 11. Patch number 12. Patch number 13. Patch number 14. 
And finally, catch number 15. So I'm a track man actually has an idea on how to improve the accuracy of these preset voices. Um, if any programmers are interested in this task, you might want to get in contact with him since he knows exactly how he'd test it, um, but would need some help with the actual coding of the uh, testing interface he has in mind. Yeah, that would be really cool if well, those existing approximations could be improved upon and made more accurate. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, so there's also a couple other minor differences between the OPLL and the VRC7, but we covered the only ones that really matter musically. Uh, the NES Dev Wiki lists out two more that we might as well mention, I guess. Um, so the first is that the VRC7 has no readily accessible status register. Under normal circumstances, it is write-only. OPLL has an undocumented 2-bit internal state register. And uh, the second thing is VRC7 has an internal state output pin and has one output pin for audio, multiplexed for all six channels. The OPLL, to contrast, has two output pins, one for FM and one for rhythm, and has no special status pin. That would make sense based on the architecture. That's actually interesting. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. No, yeah, because that, that would make sense with the OPLL having, having to have a different one for rhythm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, but so like we said, I mean, they're basically uh, the same thing in terms of music value, but with only minor differences. Uh, we have, we actually, and here's a really exciting thing. We actually have an example of the Grange Points music run through the OPLL that our friend Trackman submitted to us. Uh, that's how similar they are. You can just take the soundtrack and literally just funnel it right through the OPLL. Yeah, and so for comparison, here's the original version of the Departure and Arrival track from LaGrange Point uh, on the VRC7. And here it is again, run through the OPLL instead. Oh yeah, the bass is definitely different in the OPLL. Yeah, and though that's sort of why we we picked that example. You can definitely hear a buzzier sound on the bass. Um, But there are other times where like, if a lot of the patches are playing together and the bass sound isn't as clear there are moments where it's actually really really hard to tell the difference um so that example is like very clear oh there's a bit of a difference but there are times where it's like you could play a little bit of one or the other i'm not going to know which version it is actually yeah i think i think it's just too it's like picking out a lot of complex sounds too like i feel like it's a lot easier to pick out and identify just 2AO3 because 2AO3 there's only really you know two different sounds that are the same sound that you have to pick through, you know? So like by process, process of elimination, uh, that sound has to be the pulse, <laughs> you know, it's either that or the triangle basically. Um, so I think that the fact that there's just kind of, it's thicker with, with the, uh, the six different channels at the same time and kind of a lot of it is block chords. It, it really lends itself to being more difficult to pick out tamper, I guess. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. So I guess pivoting from there, um, Regarding non-preset voices, we mentioned that one of the voices can be custom-made. So how exactly does that work? So the chip has 16 patches that you can choose from. It's patches 1 through 15 that are the preset voices we demonstrated. And it's actually patch 0 that allows you to define its parameters and uh, build it how you want. 
But one thing to keep in mind, potentially all six FM channels could be using Voice Zero at the same time, right? Yeah, that's right. So when we say there can only be one custom voice at a time, uh, bear in mind there's no limit on how much you can use it. It can be happening in many channels at once. Yeah, I mean, you could even swap out the parameters for this custom voice as well, kind of on the fly. It's not like the current track of music requires you to build one instrument for Patch Zero and just leave it alone the whole time. At one moment, Patch Zero could be built around uh, to make one sound. A moment later, it could change to be something completely different. So again, on the fly. Yeah, so it's it's not as limited as it sounds, really, at first glance. So um, we'll analyze how the custom voices were used in Lagrange Point a bit more in a moment. Um, but for now, let's talk about what was possible with the custom voices. Like, what could it do uh, exactly? So as we mentioned earlier, we're working with two-operator FM synthesis. Using Family Tracker for reference, we can see that you basically have two halves to your instrument, the carrier settings and modulator settings, each of which have the same parameters available. So you can determine stuff like ADSR envelopes for each, as well as other settings. That's a matter of deciding how those voices manipulate each other, essentially. So we'll try to do a quick crash course on the available settings. Um, by default, you start with a simple sine wave. Uh, ADSR, of course, stands for attack, decay, sustain, and release. This is a pretty standard way of controlling the volume envelope of the sound you're making. You see it on synth synthesizers all the time. Um, so here's an example of a carrier voice that isn't manipulated in any way. Uh, there's no modulator affecting it. It is then followed by the same voice, but with the slowest attack possible, uh, to compare and contrast the range of attacks available. Now here's a note attacking at full volume right away again, but it's told to eventually sustain at volume zero, but to decay as slowly as possible. So in other words, this demonstrates the slowest possible decay. And the slowest release from max volume gets you the exact same result. So this indicates that decay and release, they function with like the same uh, timescales involved. Yeah. Uh, also, we should point out that the possible volume, volumes involved here have more gradients to them than the standard NES audio, where if we faded out a square wave on the uh, NES, there's only 16 volumes happening. 15 is allowed as one is the softest and zero is off. Uh, with the fade you just listened to from the VRC7, there's actually 64 volumes. So in that case, 63 would be the loudest, one was the softest, and then zero is off. Okay, so with uh, ADSR out of the way, what's another setting we can play with? So there's a setting to change the base waveform. Um, it's set to sine wave by default, but it can be changed to what is called rectified sine wave, which is a sine wave but with the negative parts of the waveform cut out. So instead of, to visualize that, instead of the normal, like, smooth up and down curve that a sine wave has, uh, this rectified waveform looks more like repeating humps, like a, kind of like a camel's back. Uh, so here's an example of the regular sine wave followed by the rectified sine wave. Something interesting to note here, as an aside, um, the rest of the OPL family features many more waveform settings. These are not; these are just happen to be the two that are limited to the OPLL, which is just sine or rectified sine. As a comparison, uh, the OPL two can perform sine, half sine, rectified sine, and one fourth sine wave. All of these are further variations of the sound. 
and geez, the OPL three has nine different waveforms that it can choose from. So it, it you know, the OPL again being limited just has those two, but there are many more. Um, it so it's kind of a a new thing we haven't talked about, I guess, on uh, in any episode before. So it's kind of fun to learn about that. I actually didn't know anything about that until we started doing this episode. So. Yeah, neither did I. So it's cool to see exactly how this sound is more limited than the, than the other chips. So yeah. So there's also settings for toggling tremolo and vibrato, but these are just on slash off settings. So they function at a predetermined rate and can't be altered. Uh, here's a note with just tremolo on it, followed by a note with just vibrato on it. Uh, and I'm using the rectified sine wave for both since it's a bit clearer. There's also an option for sustaining notes that can be toggled. It'll lock notes into sustaining forever, which I don't think we need to play an example of because that's pretty much easy to imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just imagine a note that doesn't uh, stop. So This is uh, the note that doesn't end. You know, it goes on <laughs> and on, my friend. Yep. Uh, so I'm not really sure what the point of that function is, though, because as far as I can tell, it achieves the same thing as just not including a release value in your ADSR. It just yeah, that is interesting. You yeah. were you brought this up to me earlier when we were preparing for the episode, and I couldn't find a good answer for that. I guess it's just the function. I think one is like a, a to actually stop the pitch would kind of be or sustain forever would be one would be a function of the tracker and one would be a function of the chip maybe. And maybe am I getting that wrong? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's odd. We have to look into that a bit more. But as far as I yeah. could tell, I could hit the sustain button to have the note hold up forever, or I could just drag the release slider all the way over so it's not set to anything and the note would get mm. stuck in the same place of its envelope so i wonder if there's a technical difference between the two that would be interesting there, to see if there, anyone there definitely there is so yeah um it, it definitely shows up in the instrument data in a different place so interesting yeah, yeah. well okay then it, they must be different in some particular way then i wonder when and when you were looking at different chips did you notice that one in particular was preferred or no yeah, no, that's an interesting question, because I did that deep dive into the uh, custom voices used in Lagrange Point, which we'll talk a bit more about in a moment. Um, and you do see a lot of those patches using the sustain option. That that option is toggled on some of those instruments. So, oh, interesting. Um, it, it, it was something that was used. Okay, so I guess that might also be the answer then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I guess it, there's also kind of getting back to, you know, what we can use in Family Tracker, just uh, different things. There's also the multiply multiplier factor, um, but it does different things to each half of the sound. Uh, on the carrier side, it modifies the frequency of the note. So if you slide it up one, the whole instrument goes up an octave. Uh, so here's a before and after of, the increase, of increasing the carrier's multiplier factor. But on the modulator side, it modifies the rate of modulation. So to hear this, this example does have a modulator affecting the carrier signal, and each time it plays, the slider for the multiplier factor on the modulator side is increased once. The last, the last couple ones there sound kind of weird and goofy. It's pretty cool. I feel like I'm taking a hearing test. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like what sound emerges from it. Yep, totally. Yeah. Uh, so, Family Tracker also has sliders for changing the audio levels of the carrier and modulator signals. Um, these level sliders are a little strange. On the carrier side, it only operates with these larger chunks. 
Um, so what I think it's doing, remember how I mentioned there's 64 possible volumes? Correction. Steve mentioned there were 64 volumes, not Patrick. So what I think it's doing is the loudest option gives you volume 63, second loudest gives you 47, third uh, gets you 31, and the last volume setting gives you volume 15. At least I think that's what's happening. I could be wrong, but it's only letting you pick one of four possible volumes. It sounds like this. But this volume option really isn't as limited as it seems, because even though it's letting you pick these different distinct chunks of volumes, you could just change the ADSR envelope to be a little bit different if you wanted. Yeah, plus when you mix the modulator signal with your carrier signal, there's going to be all sorts of ways the sound gets manipulated uh, that any further level of control isn't really necessary beyond these main chunks. Plus, you do have detailed control over the modulator volume. So having full control of the volume of one side is good enough for mixing them together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is a separate volume slider called modulator level. It's off to the side in Famitracker's instrument editor. So you know how I said that, like, there's two halves to, to your instrument, basically, and they all have the same settings? This is apart from that. This is just sitting off to the side. Uh, so it's not a setting that's for, for available for both halves of the instrument, so to speak. Um, so this modulator level lets you finally adjust the modulator's level. Um, but without it, the main slider on the modulator settings works the same as the volume slider on the other side. So again, once again, this, this main slider just reduces things in large chunks. Interesting. So let's listen to an example here. We have a carrier signal being set to a simple sine wave, and the modulator signal is a rectified sine wave with a vibrato on it. So you can kind of hear like the two halves of the instrument are kind of distinct from each other. Um, and each time it plays, the modulator is reduced a level in the volume while the carrier stays at full volume. And it, at, at the end, it just completely shuts off uh, with the carrier sine wave playing by itself. So it makes for a good example of how you can mix the levels of the two different halves of your instrument together. So again, to recap, basically just heard the modulator disappearing in the mix progressively as that as that last example just played. Yeah, and so there's just two options left on the VRC7 instrument editor in uh, Family Tracker. Uh, there's an option you can toggle called key scaling, which just seems to speed up whatever your ADSR envelope is uh, doing, basically. So here's a before and after example of key scaling being toggled. And then, I guess, last but definitely not least, is the feedback option. Oh, yeah. This is a big component of what gives uh, FM Audio its like kind of gnarly, uh, dirty sound. Uh, the option to distort your audio with feedback, basically. Um, there's eight levels of feedback, uh, from zero to uh, being off to seven being the highest intensity. Uh, here's an example of an instrument starting at zero and increasing in feedback. You get different mileage depending on the instrument you're trying to do feedback. Like with that instrument, at the very end, it sounded like straight up noise. Um, but I have tried applying feedback to other patches, and they just get kind of noisy, but don't sound like full blown white noise at the end of it. Um, so you definitely sort of have to play with your instrument and build it in different ways uh, to get the most out of the feedback. Pretty much. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting too because I, I think that one of the most important parts about making these different instruments is there's a lot of tweaking involved. Like we just went over what eight or nine settings, maybe 10. 
Um, and all of those settings are kind of important to creating FM instruments. And interestingly enough, when you're doing a four operator, it's kind of like the work is doubled for all of this mm-hmm. or quadrupled in a lot of ways. Um, so there's there's a lot more variability and options that way. So I think we tried to explain four operator and synthesis in the Sega Genesis episode a little bit. Um, but, you know, two operators a little simpler because you just have the, the, you know, the first operator and second operator in this case. Um, but it still requires lots of tweaking to sound good. Um, oh, yeah. And I think that a lot of it is just really fooling around with it until you like what you hear. Um, experimentation is, is key. And hopefully what we've talked about here in terms of you experimenting with these sounds in Family Tracker, which is a great uh, medium for this, or OCC Family Tracker, um, that you'll be able to maybe understand what you're doing while you're fooling around with the sounds. I, I hope that really helps uh, a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that pretty much covers it. Again, messing with all the aforementioned options we just uh, went over is how you make all of the sounds you hear with the VRC7. Exactly. So with all the basics of the audio covered, let's talk about Lagrange Point. Grangepoint is an RPG that came out in April of 1991. A fan translation just came out a little less than three years ago, so it's now playable to anyone that speaks English and doesn't mind patching the ROM. Uh, Steve, have you played it before? So, I actually have it for Famicom, uh, which is cool, but it is in Japanese, and that's frustrating to me because I, you know, uh, my Japanese is very so-so. I like to say that I'm like the Peggy Hill of Japanese in a lot of cases. It's like, I got it, but I'm probably wrong most of the time. Um, and there's the English translation patch. I, it can't be played on Power Pack because the Power Pack doesn't support the mappers that allow the VRC7 to actually work. So uh. I really want to play it with the real music. But so it's kind of like a weird conundrum. Like I, yeah. I could play it on emulator, but that's not the same experience as it, like actually playing it on like my CRT and everything. So that's the only thing that's really stopped me from playing it. I've heard it's really great, but that that's kind of made me like a little cranky about it. I guess. <laughs> I I have played like halfway through the game uh, on in emulation. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good RPG. It's pretty standard and it's actually pretty easy. Um, you know, I, I've been trained by like Dragon Warrior to basically level up, uh, you know, all the time, nonstop. Yeah, uh, I'm used to having to like farm to get through like tough RPGs. This is a game where that's not really needed that much. Um, so it, it's like a pretty casual RPG in some ways. The premise is really cool though, um, from like a scientific standpoint. I just the setting, at least of the game, it takes place in a Lagrange point. Uh, do you know what a Lagrange point is, Steve? Uh, I will plead the fifth. <laughs> It's uh, it's really cool. So Lagrange point is basically like uh, a point, uh, like a, how would you describe it? Sort of like a, a balancing point in the gravity between two different objects. Um, mm. Basically, if you wanted something else to orbit the sun following like the same orbit as planet Earth, uh, the gravity of Earth is going to like screw with that orbit of whatever, whatever object you try putting out there. 
Um, mm-hmm. So it's not going to have a stable orbit. It's going to get like tossed out in the solar system. But there are specific spots called Lagrange points, which are very specific places in relationship to where the Earth is in the orbit that are like these safe spots, kind of. So like if you put something on the complete opposite side of the sun, it could sort of balance with our gravitational pull and it could orbit the sun nicely with us. Um, there's also like other spots where if it's like a quarter way through our orbit or something like that, like I don't remember the exact numbers. Um, but basically the idea is that the game takes place on like a space colony that's placed in one of these Lagrange points. And that's like, that's pretty correct. Like that's, if we were going to build like a space colony, one place to put them would be in one of these actual uh, Lagrangian points. So oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's cool. Like they got a bit of like a, a sci-fi. I feel like that's something you would read in, in like an actual sci-fi book and not really see in an NES game. Uh, so, yeah. you know, is they got that sci-fi concept down. I think that's really cool. Yeah. So, sorry for the huge tangent on the fringe points. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's really cool stuff. Uh, I probably explained it partly wrong, but that that's pretty much the gist of it. That's um, why so I pled the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, anyways, uh, getting back on track here. Uh, something I wanted to explore for this episode was how were the custom sound patches in the Grange Point used exactly? We mentioned that patch number zero is the customizable voice, but to be perfectly honest, when I listen to the soundtrack, it's not like at any given moment I can tell you, you know, for sure when a custom voice is being used or not, not by ear. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying. Like, I feel like FM blends together a little bit. It's not as like, uh, you know, what I, the example I used about the 2A03. So yeah, I agree. It is kind of hard to pick it out. Uh So I kind of assume that because you can only use one custom voice at a time, that there wouldn't be a whole lot of them. That'd be kind of like the extra flair here and there to various tracks of music. Mm -hmm. I expected maybe something like a dozen at most throughout the soundtrack. I mean, I really didn't know what to expect, but like um, for the Famicom disc system, the most custom voices I've ever seen in one of those games is maybe like 11 or 12 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But as it turns out, the number of custom patches totally dwarves the number of preset patches. Uh, LaGrange Point uses 52 custom voices. So with a soundtrack uh, that has, you know, 31, 32 tracks, uh, that's more than one custom patch for song (laughs) in the soundtrack. That's crazy. Yeah, every track has at least one custom patch in it, even the jingles and shorter tracks. And some tracks have a bunch of them. Well, link in the show notes. Uh, you made that spreadsheet thingy kind of with all the patches and what tracks they show up in. Yeah. And so something in the spreadsheet that you'll see is that I have 64 patches actually listed out. And I was reading online that the VRC7 allows for up to 64 patches. Oh, wow. Uh, um, but I have a bunch highlighted in blue. These are patches that show up in the game's data. Like I was able to get like these values when I was dumping them all. Um, but they're unused variations of existing patches. Yeah, and like as we were kind of talking about uh, off the podcast, but these are basically altered to be like shut off versions of the existing patches. If that makes any sense, like they're copy pastes of other custom patches, but a couple of values are all dragged all the way up so that it kind of makes them just like silent versions of these patches. Yeah, but they're not actually used in the music anywhere, as far as I can tell. So it's like it's like the sixty four patches are padded out with these. But if you exclude them, that's how I got my count of like 52 patches that are actually used, as far as I can tell. Yeah, that makes sense. So getting back to the music here, there's actually one track in particular that uses more custom patches than any other. Uh, City of Birthday uses seven different instruments in patch number zero. Oh, wow. Um, So let's give City of Birthday a listen.
So again, like I was saying before, it can be tricky to demonstrate exactly which voices in there are the custom voices, because they aren't mapped to a specific channel. Remember that there are six FM channels, but Patch Zero can and will be loaded into pretty much any of those channels um, based on the whim of you know the original composer or sound programmer. So um, you can't really just mute any channels to show them off. But what I did is I imported the NSF into FamaTracker and manually cut out all the preset voices, uh, so you can hear the track again and hear what the custom voices actually contribute. Uh, man, and uh, so a bit of a quick tangent here, but the drum beat towards the end of that track is so, so good. Yeah, they're awesome. Yeah. Yeah, the way it feels to me is like it feels very natural and organic. Uh, it, for I guess for lack of a better term, it sounds like something a drummer would actually play. Um, like in a lot of NES music, the drum parts, like there'll be approximations of parts you'd play on a real drum kit. There'll be like simple rock beats and you listen to it and you get how it translates to a drum set. You can sort of picture it in your head. Um, but it's very rare that I listen to NES music and a drum part would make me think of like sticking or something more particular. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that drum beat there does that. It's sort of like, Oh man, there's like maybe a little 16th note triplet fill. How would I play that? Would I do like a right left left? Um, so it, it's sort of a bit more advanced than I feel like in your average NES drum beat, like at the other end of the spectrum, I picture something like Skullman from Mega Man four, which mm-hmm. was like very clunky drumming in it. Um, it, this feels very much like a, a real drummer sitting down and playing that part. No, yeah, I, I totally agree. It, it it's interesting because like it, it's very noticeable even when you listen to I, I think Konami and we've talked about Konami <laughs> plenty, but uh, I think Konami lends itself to having uh, a, a smarter approach to drums in general. I think uh, mm-hmm. than some of the other. I, I obviously Sunsoft does too. I think in a lot of cases, but I think just like little things, like just think about like some of the details and like Bayou Billy and just like little tiny. Uh, different idea like is my is a great example really with mm-hmm. all the different kinds of uh you know uh, dpc and patches that they're using to kind of create that entire drum set in different sounds and the little bongo drums and everything in there and i you know i that attention to detail uh is something you know that i guess every time we talked about konami we always talk about attention to detail but you know uh they they try to write things in a musical way and I, there's no question in my mind that like you know they understood what drums are supposed to sound like in this situation as opposed to just using the noise channel noise channel to kind of hack and slash as i call it like the very early capcom game soundtracks right. yeah absolutely yeah oh so speaking of drums um it's worth to point out what the base nes channels are contributing 
Um, they make up all the drums in uh, Lagrange Point, combining the noise channel, sample channel, and even the first pulse channel. Yeah, and that's how the whole soundtrack is arranged. It makes use of nine channels total when drums are included, six FM voices from the VRC7, and three from the bass NES sound. Which reminds me, it's like of the OPLL, right? It's like you have the drum mode, mm-hmm. um, right? So it's kind of like this is approximating that. Yeah, it is. I mean, with the, the five channels of FM drums, they're kind of set to preset drums. It's like a drum machine kind of built in there. So you can probably accomplish all of those things, especially because it sounds like you basically you have your standard, uh, you know, DPCM. I think there's a bass drum and a snare, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, noise channels adding something to it. And it sounds like they're making kind of a, a pulse tom of some yeah. kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of similar to what you'd get or, or equates roughly to what you'd get from the five preset channels on the OPLL. Yeah. In a way, it's kind of nicer. If it, like, I love having the bass NES sound for that. It's because uh, we talk about the VRC7 being a more simplified version of the OPLL, which it is mm-hmm. if you're talking about just the VRC7. Um, but you know, picking up for that slack with the bass NES audio, doing percussion from there, I think it sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like, um, I really, really love the two uh, drum sample sounds that they use. Uh, the the bass drum and the, the snare and, and Lagrange Point are definitely somewhere, perhaps, in my own compositions quite often. <laughs> oh, nice. You stole that. <laughs> I really love great. that. That snare has that, like, real, like, kind of terrible crisp sound but it's like it's like perfect if you put a z command on it it's, it's one of my favorites so um, um oh yeah one thing to point out is that the triangle wave isn't used anywhere in the soundtrack or the sound effects even i think um yeah. it seems like anytime there's a sound expansion and some of the bass nes audio is potentially on the chopping block the triangle wave is the first thing to go yeah, it seems to be the least favorable voice on the Famicom and NES, probably due to its lack of volume control. Also, like th- having the triangle used in addition to the DPCM and the noise, uh, like you kind of have to use the noise or the triangle. You know, it kind of reduces the volume overall. So it, it might it, it might be some kind of diminishing returns on the triangle in that situation. I found that when I've used VRC seven and tried to use the triangle, it it just sounds out of place. Like it's either it's too soft because I don't want and I don't want to use Z commands to make it louder. Um, and the FM sounds are just kind of uh, superior to it. So, you know, and it's interesting to note that the Japanese version of Castlevania three, uh, Akamajo Densetsu, didn't use the triangle wave, uh, but it did use the much louder and much cooler sawtooth of the VRC six. And we, it's, we all know that the Akamajo uh, Densetsu soundtrack is vastly superior to its NES counterpart. Oh man, no, no, uh, definitely. <laughs> it, it's funny. That's that's something that comes up a lot. Actually, there's a really funny meme that my friend uh, Misha made recently. Uh, it's like the it's like the Captain America Civil War thing. But it's like people <laughs> arguing about which version of the Castlevania three soundtrack is superior. Um, yeah, I, I always rag on the sawtooth being too loud. So, uh, I think it's I think it's the right volume. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, something else to point out regarding the custom patches. Getting getting back on track here. Yeah. Um, something else I thought would be interesting to find out is if there's a most used cu- custom patch in there, and it turns out there is. There's one patch that shows up in five different tracks. Uh, it's patch number twenty-seven on my list, and it sounds like this. So I think we covered most of the technical stuff we wanted to point out with the VRC7 and Lagrange Point, but we haven't mentioned anything about the composers yet. So who is responsible for the soundtrack? 
That's a good question. <laughs> so we found out that some of the composers are simply unknown, uh, which is very frustrating. Yes. Uh, two of the names that primarily come up because they're mentioned in the in-game credits, which is usually our, you know, that is the source, although people used nicknames and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But usually that's the first place we would go to to look at, yeah. uh, look for this kind of stuff would be Akio Tobashi and uh, Noriyuki Takahashi. Um, both were members of a group called Rebecca, who scored various soundtracks to an anime called Tokyo Babylon. However, these two people are only credited for two specific tracks. Uh, Noriyuki Takahashi composed Tums Boogie, and Akio Dabashi composed the uh, ending theme, The Resurrection of Sabbath. Let's give those tracks a listen. Another composer who is not mentioned in the in-game credits but on the CD released for the soundtrack uh, from 1991 is Tadashi 
uh, Sawashita. Um, they're credited for Bubbles of Light, uh, the Tom's death cutscene, if you will. So this music is actually set to like a really fantastic and maybe kind of hilarious part of the game. Uh, there's a cutscene with this character Tum. He's like this cute little, I don't know, I guess like a child wearing like a sort of like bunny costume. Um, walks up to this giant monster and just gets like slashed in the face and like thrown across the room and killed. And uh, and it's a kind That's of funny hilarious to, to you. That's yeah. hilarious. Yeah, it's, kind of uh, hilarious. It's, it's totally hilarious. Um, so there's a really great, uh, there's a playthrough that actually I mentioned earlier, Mr. Norbert uploaded a playthrough of the game on YouTube, and I have a, I have a link to that, I'll include in the show notes um, for the time-stamped uh, part for that cutscene. It's it's really cool, and there's not, uh, the game doesn't really have a lot of cutscenes like that. In fact, that might be the only one like that, so uh, it's it's a weird, kind of cool stand, uh, standout part of the game, um, and the music is great. Yeah, yeah. And so speaking of the music, that music, again, was done by Tadashi Saoshita. Uh, and they're listed just, or, you know, the composer is listed for just a few other titles, uh, but none of them are on the Famicom. Uh, that would be Blue Forest Story, which is a game for, listen, as the 3DO. Wow. And PlayStation 1. Uh, let's play an example. We also have a couple composers that the CD credits only lists out in kanji. Uh, and something I just recently learned about kanji, actually, is that it can be incredibly difficult um, to translate names out of context. That's not something I was aware of, that like the, the period a name comes from can change. Yeah, uh, or it can affect it's... how the name is, is said, so uh, yeah. or what the name is. So um, mm-hmm. I had some help. Uh, I actually double-checked with a couple different sources. A friend on Twitter and also some folks on the shiz um, helped look in, looked into this for me. The first composer's surname is Nakamura. Um, they're both certain of that, and they actually both agreed on the given name of Kenji. So we think the name is Kenji Nakamura. Uh, so what else did Kenji Nakamura do? Nothing. <laughs> of course. Of course. So, of course. Right. So nothing comes up under that name, but if it is an alias, there were two other Nakamuras doing sound stuff for Konami. Uh, one of which who was at Konami during this time, the other of which whose first known credit is just a couple years later. So mm-hmm. um, going by that, my best guess for now is that this might be Kozo Nakamura, who also worked on games like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, uh, TMNT 4, Monster in My Pocket, and uh, Zen Intergalactic Ninja. But it also might not be at all. <laughs> right, exactly. So uh, Within the Deep Darkness is the one track this person is credited for, may or may not be Kozo Nakamura. Uh, Let's give it a listen. 
So the other kanji credit we have possibly it could possibly translate to Sama Kawamoto or Makoto Kawamoto. Um, we don't. Those are really you know the two guesses we have. Uh, and we don't really know who that might be. There's a composer singer by the name of Makoto Kawamoto, but she would have been 16 with when the Grange Point came out. Uh, Wikipedia has that person's career listed as starting five years later in 1996, um, but that would be that musician's first proper single. So, you know, maybe it's not too big of a stretch to think that a performing musician did some random composing as soon as, you know, she became of legal working age in Japan, which is 15, according to Google. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> maybe this is her, maybe it's not. Uh, and the one track credit to them is uh, called Relaxed Atmosphere. So another composer not mentioned the in-game credits is Aki Hata, and she's actually probably responsible for the bulk of the LaGrange Point soundtrack. And the only reason we know what tracks she specifically composed are because she listed them on her on her website, um, according to VGMDB.net. Um, she composed nine of the tracks, and we'll go through some of our favorites of hers here. Uh, I guess the first one would be Searching for the Promised Land. She also composed the Aqueduct track, which alongside uh, City of Birthday, which we played earlier, those are probably my two favorite tracks from the game. Which, by the way, she also composed uh, City of Birthday. So uh, here's Aqueduct.
that track is really great. That's like a lot of the Lagrange Point soundtrack had to grow on me over time. You know, now there's a, a good number of songs from it I really like, um, but Aqueduct in particular is like the first time I listened to it. I just I really like that track right away. Yeah, no, and like City of Birthday is a great track too, and they they're kind of not related, but I feel like they're like two of the better tracks on the whole uh, you know soundtrack, obviously. So yeah, absolutely. Um, she also composed uh, Bio Paradise. So her credits are actually kind of all over the place. She has a Wikipedia page, which we can link to in the show notes. Uh, she's done solo albums, anime music, uh, video game music as well. Um, she's credited on various titles from the 16-bit era, like Rocket Knight Adventures, Madeira 2, uh, Dynamite Hetty. She's also even credited on one of the Cho Aniki games on PlayStation 2, which if you don't know what Cho Aniki is, we'll definitely we'll link to footage of that as well. It's something else. She's credited for writing the theme song lyrics to what looks like almost 100 different anime uh, series, which is pretty insane. Uh, there's a massive list we'll link right here uh, in the show notes as well. Yeah, it, it's totally insane. It's just she's done a ton of stuff. Um, so this leaves the rest of the tracks as being credited to the Konami Kukeha Club, which, as far as I understand, this isn't really a real group of people. It, it literally means a Konami Square Wave Club. That's that's what it translates to. We've mentioned them a couple of different times before. Yeah, uh, but like, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason as to who's in this club. It's not like a particular subset of composers belong to it. Um, basically, if a game was made by Konami, they could slap Konami Kukeha Club on the credits and skip giving more specific credits. So it's not like there's an in-group we can point to and be like, oh, you know, maybe it's one of those guys. Um, it's literally as non-specific as saying Konami made this, or at least that's my understanding of it. Yeah, the Wikipedia page on it seems to basically list every classic Konami composer and sound programmer whose name could be confirmed, almost uh, 100 people or so. Uh, when you, so whenever you see that credited for a soundtrack, it, it doesn't seem to tell you anything, basically. <laughs> right, and that's why it's great that Akihata clarified which tracks she composed, because without doing so, she would just be swallowed into those credits. So speaking of which, once you cross off all the tracks we have tied to specific composers, that still leaves us with 17 more tracks. Um, that, you know, we just don't know who did them. So we'll go through our favorites of those. Uh, first up is the theme of Isis.
And then next up is satellite base. Another fantastic one is Departure and Arrival as this really cool like uh, pitch bend at the end of the loop, this downwards pitch bend I love. And then finally, Orange Party. Yeah, this is kind of a goofy one. And there are two more credits listed for sound design, so these were likely the sound programmers. Who knows if maybe they also composed some of the currently uncredited tracks? Um, but their their names we mentioned a lot in the Konami episode before: uh, Atsuchi Fujio and Katsuhiko Suzuki. Yeah, uh, investigating a little bit, I, I found the sound credits uh, that you know also match what I saw in the Video Game Music Preservation uh, Foundation for the sound design. Uh, these guys were also kind of composers. Suzuki-san uh, was a composer for Yume Penguin Monogatari. Um, and I really think that in particular, Orange Party kind of reminds me of some of his work, especially from that, the, the first stage track from it. So maybe he's a sound designer, but maybe he helped contribute. I'm not even sure because that might make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fujio-san is accredited for sound design on a million different things, including like BioBilly, Madara, which is another expansion audio game, Blades of Steel. And another you know kind of tidbit is also did the sound design for Castlevania Bloodlines, um, which is pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, like they're credited for sound design, which implies sound programming. But it seems like since they did do some composing for other games, I would assume mm-hmm. that they probably are responsible for some of the uncredited tracks in this game. They might be, yeah. So that pretty much wraps up our Lagrange Point discussion. Uh, we do have one last track to share related to it, um, but just stick around to the very end of the episode if you're interested in hearing it. 
And I guess also kind of the final thing about the VRC7 to kind of close the book here is that, well, um, there was another game that used it, um, and it was the Famicom version of Tiny Toon Adventures 2. Yeah, Tiny Toon Adventures 2 came out like a year and a half later than Lagrange Point, but it only used the VRC7 uh, for the other stuff that mappers typically do. So it didn't use the sound expansion at all. According to the NES Dev Wiki, its board lacks required additional audio mixing circuitry. So it's not just that they didn't program it to use the audio. Uh, like even if you tried to hack it in, it's just the cart is physically missing the hardware to make that work as well. Yeah. So when we say the Grange Point was the only game to use the VRC7, of course we're just talking about it from the audio perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I should probably make an edit to the. There's the cutting room floor page. Uh, it currently says that Lagrange Point was the only game to use the VRC7. Uh, so it's like I, I should maybe update that. I could use some clarifying. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> hey so what's going on uh actually a bunch of things we have some important podcast announcements uh one thing though i just want to quickly mention before i forget is that uh lagrange point soundtrack was recently pressed to vinyl uh, from the Ship to Shore Phono Company. So I got my copy of it. Uh, it's a cool thing they released. Um, it's pretty amazing that it happened at all, quite frankly. So we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, if you want to see cool, you know, vinyl releases of video game soundtracks, uh, check it out. It's it's a cool thing that's happening. Yeah, it's, a lot of companies are doing that, including BraveWave uh, has a couple good releases coming out. Yeah, yeah, BraveWave uh, has the Ninja Gaiden album coming yeah, out, right? This is going to be really awesome. Oh yeah, my god, I'm going to go broke. It, um, <laughs> I want that. Yeah. I Mondo recently released their Castlevania three record. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I got the Castlevania two record. I think. Um, thank you so much, Kevin Burke. Um, the yeah, Castlevania three. Like, there's a bunch of cool video game soundtracks getting released to vinyl. I've never really collected them before. Uh, my my collection as of last year would be zero like video game soundtracks owned on vinyl. And by the end of this year, I'm sure I'm gonna have a bunch. So. Um, yeah, it's a cool thing. I, I'm glad that's happening. Yeah, they're, they're just taking our money. <laughs> yes, yeah, oh, absolutely. Man, Ninja Gaiden, yeah, God, yeah, I, I have to get that. Yeah, and I guess in addition to that, we have a lot of, uh, you know, general podcast announcements, too. Yes, I just launched a YouTube channel of the same name, Retro Game Audio. Uh, the main idea is that some supplemental content is going to go up there. Um, I recently uploaded something to accompany the Konami episode, where I play one track from every Konami game in chronological order of release. It's almost two hours long. Uh, that's how many games came out from the from Konami on the Famicom and NES. It's crazy. Um, it's a labor of love, too. It took you a very long time to put it together. You should tell the people that, because you, you were working on it for quite some time. Oh, yeah, it took me weeks. Um, it, yeah. There's, there's like, pop-up little like text information that like i share a bit of history or commentary on the sound design as well i try to keep it as interesting as i could and uh you know so it's something you can throw on 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 the background as a playlist um bearing in mind the playlist starts off kind of crappy because their earliest games you know they they don't have great music yet um but the place sort of gets better and better as it goes and uh um yeah it was a fun thing to do i i want to go back and make more videos for older episodes i'm I'm sure I'll do a Sunsoft set of videos eventually, uh, Alberto Gonzalez video, um, you know, there'll be more stuff popping up. Uh, also other stuff, I, I, I uploaded the hybrid mix of the Castlevania 3 and Akuma Jao Densetsu soundtrack uh, that a friend made some years back. 
um, but it wasn't on YouTube yet. So I uploaded the that soundtrack, and it has like a pia- oh, cool. piano display of both versions. Um, yeah, I didn't realize this till recently, but the emulator uh, Virtua NES, if you play NSFs in it, it has like a keyboard display. And um, there's a couple of other keyboard displays I was already familiar with, like NS- NSF Play has one, but uh, this mm-hmm. this one I thought looked nice for the video. So I actually have, I recorded video of that piano display from Castlevania 3 and also from Akuma Jada and Setsu. So the whole time this whole hybrid mix is playing, you see piano views of both versions on the side. So you can kind of see like how the different versions of the soundtracks are actually a little bit different from each other and how they're being mixed together. Um so it's kind of cool. I didn't make it again. The hybrid mix wasn't my creation, uh, but it was cool to put it up on YouTube and sort of like add that visual component uh, for like, visual comparison. Um, so uh, I thought that was cool to have. So it's uh, it, stuff isn't going to be going on the YouTube channel with any sort of uh, regularity necessarily, um, but there will be sort of like uh, there's definitely going to be stuff coming. So yeah also we launched our own twitter account now too uh which is just at retro game audio with no spaces um this way you know you uh you can kind of just follow that if you don't want to see my random musings or patrick's random musings you can follow one direct line to us of course we'll still be talking about it on our uh, personal twitters but it makes sense to just have one for this that way you can check back and it will just literally show if you missed one episode it'll have we'll we'll put some regular updates on there um, but, you know, it will be sure to like, you know, it'll keep a good log without our regular personal uh, <laughs> account information and stuff that we end up talking about, which inevitably for me is just new uh, Sharp X68K soundtracks um, yeah. you know, to get buried <laughs> in there or like opening up my Genesis to fix things, um, which has been what I've been doing a lot lately. Um, yeah. Or but it's it, good. This, yeah. Yeah, if it's for my Twitter account, it's just going to be posts about, like, Dark Souls. So, like, yeah, understandably, I don't know why we didn't think of this sooner, but, yeah, having a, a main Twitter home for the podcast is is a good idea. So I'm glad we did that. Yeah, I, th- I think that makes the most sense. Um, then the other big final announcement is we just launched a Patreon uh, as, yep. as of right now. Uh, as, soon yep. as, as soon as this episode is up, uh, the Patreon is up as well. So, Steve, uh, what's the deal with the Patreon? So, uh, you know, we it's kind of cool to have this, like, one of the things, like, we've been talking about a lot, and we've been kind of encouraged by the listeners, you guys out there, is just kind of, you know, having a little bit of, uh, you know, I, I guess the thing is, it takes a long time to put these episodes together. We kind of discussed this uh, on, our, on the Patreon, which we're going to link here, obviously, but, you know, it would be nice to just get some equipment upgrades here. I've had people disparage me often for my mic quality. Yeah, I mean, I'm literally using my laptop's mic, so I'm surprised that it sounds this good <laughs> in some situations. Oh, it's better than um, I, so, I had to get a mic because mine was terrible. Mine was, like, way worse than yours, so. Uh, yeah, this is not too bad. I use it for conferences at work and whatnot, but just little things like that. And, you know, uh, we're going to have three really simple tiers, um, and, and I think it, it's just kind of a really simple operation. It would be very nice that so we can kind of pay to – to make sure that we're hosting all of our things. And we had some uh, mixing software, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It would also nice, uh, be nice so that we can use a little bit of that funds uh, to dip into and buy some of the consoles so that we can do more uh, things directly off chip. Like this episode, uh, I mean, when possible, and in most cases, I mean, I recorded this directly off my own VRC7 LaGrange Point, uh, you know, cart using my Famicom and my TNS HFC3. 
I just so happen to have that kind of stuff, but I don't have like a Sharp X68000. So I couldn't record any of those things, even though that actually the Sharp X68000 has a very good native player on it. Um, and there's other things like that. Like there's other episodes we want to do where we'd love to have those sounds. And, you know, we're not looking to profit off this. We'll never make any money off this. And that was never the intention. It's really just to share with you guys, like all the cool stuff we're thinking about. But, you know, uh, it would be nice if we can just, uh, uh, you know, accumulate some of this stuff so that we have a, a deeper understanding and we can really bring you guys like what we kind of envisioned for a lot of our episodes. Yeah, absolutely. And we are very careful to set the Patreon up in a way that we're not gating content that would come out otherwise. Oh, yeah. Um, like if, if, if nothing comes in at all, uh, nothing changes. You know, the, the podcast is still going to be a monthly podcast. Um, mm-hmm. We they're like one of the tiers has like some bonus content. It's content that absolutely would not normally make it into an episode. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we're setting things up in a way that uh, just a sort of like extra nice touches. If people want to donate, they can uh, help us out and we can f- throw them a few extra things that, uh, you know, we hope they might find worth it. But otherwise, the podcast is going to uh you know, be the same aside from possibly maybe uh, if we get some help, we can possibly improve the podcast a little bit, but nothing's being withheld. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah, exactly. We're, 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 we believe very strongly that the podcast should just still be where it is. Um, so, we're, you know, the podcast will always be free. They'll, we're never going to charge for the podcast. Exactly. And I think that's, some, you know, like, there's no reason to gate it, as Patrick said. So that makes, you know, that makes the most sense for us. And like, you know, if we if we get, you know, nothing on there, that's perfectly fine. We're still going to keep making the podcast. So. Yeah, exactly. So I guess the next thing we could talk about are comments on the X68K episode. Um, we have a couple here that are really good. And uh, there's actually one that I kind of asked for in the episode, which is good. Um, Hun Retro Geek, a uh, good big fan of uh, you know his comments usually. He always has something, to, <laughs> a good corrective way of looking at things <laughs> is a good way to put mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, and provides us with more instruction if we're not clear. Actually sat down and, and wrote out uh, a, a different description of PCM, DPCM, and ADPCM. So this is what they wrote. So uh, I'll try to sum up the main gists of each. So PCM, the values get interpreted literally as the new level of the DAC. DPCM, the values are interpreted as how much to add or subtract from the current DAC level. And ADPCM, same as DPCM. But the values of the difference can be a variable scale in some applications, speech, music, etc., might require different scales. So a value of one could mean that we change the DAC level a bit, but for another setting, it could be a huge difference. Something else cool that Hunter Trigeek also pointed out with sampling is that um, the higher component frequencies are in the original sound, the more that sample will suffer when you lower the sampling rate. So something like a cymbal is going to sound crappier when you lower the sample quality as composed to a bass drum since it's deeper sounds. That, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Just yeah. like even even on a very visceral level of understanding. Um, it's funny, though, because like, uh, I've been inspired to try to use more... Uh, you know, sampled symbols. I, I usually use like an FM uh, symbol or, uh, you know, use noise channel. Uh, and cause like, I think there's just something, especially researching for the, uh, the X68K episode, there's something that's so classic about that, like really bad choppiness that it gets. Like it, it, it's like, you kind of expect it. Like you think of the really bad symbols in like street fighter two, like mm-hmm. uh, on the level stages and stuff. So that nostal- it kind of adds the nostalgic factor. Like I think I dogged on it and said it was like really bad during the episode, but kind of breaking it down, I have a greater appreciation for it now. Uh, and I think that like washed out symbol sound is actually like an aesthetic. Like it's kind of awesome in its own weird way. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Oh, there's another great comment about sample playback from Delta Rosero. Um, they said the amount of bits doesn't always mean everything. Keep in mind that for ADPCM, it's a compression of samples that later get decompressed to a much better bit depth. Uh, this is in order to save space. Ah, okay, that makes sense. That does make sense. Okay, that absolutely makes sense. I would sense. really need to look up again. I swear I saw something on NES Dev a bunch of years back about 4-bit ADPCM coming out of the NES. Uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, Again, I don't know how it worked. I think it was similar to the streaming 7-bit audio somehow. So I think it's yeah. someone that, you know, achieved on the NES, but I would, I would have to double-check that. Uh, so we have a comment here also from Alex Tyson, and they said that um, they were hoping to hear some his me during this episode. Yes, his me is awesome, and we completely forgot to, like, put anyone in the episode that was a modern composer on the X68K. So that's a major, major, uh, we, we, a major overlook on our part. Um uh, that, yeah, I'm really sorry about that. I'll make sure I'll link to His Me's music right here if anyone wants to hear it. Uh, I think His Me even uses, and I've, I think he uses two uh, OPMs. Yeah, I think he uses two uh, X68Ks at the same time or alternates between the two. Uh, it's crazy dance music, too. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll post a link to his stuff here. Also, I'd just like to quickly mention that Alex Tyson is an awesome dude. And I uh, was very happy to see his comment on the episode. Uh, we used to be in a band together uh, way, way back uh, in sort of indie pop band called Brown Recluse. Uh, and um, Alex Tyson makes some awesome electronic music. Uh, I'll link to that in the show notes. You got to hear this stuff. It's it's great. So I guess that about wraps up uh, the comments here. Uh, so let's talk about uh, Name That Game. So uh, here is last week's example for Name That Game. And that was correctly guessed by I Am A Track Man. Uh, it was MC Kids Stage 2. MC Kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. I, I love that track. It's great. So for this week's Name That Game, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, not too long ago, uh, someone posted on the Hidden Sound Test Facebook group uh, a Game Boy track. I guess it says they, they recorded it from their phone a few years back, so they can't remember what it's from. Uh, I gave it a listen. I couldn't recognize it. Uh, other people commenting couldn't recognize it. So we actually don't know what this is. So we're just going to pass it along to the listeners. Uh, see if anyone can identify this Game Boy track. Thank you. 
Man, yeah, I, I really love the melody in that track, which is uh, part of the reason that I'm so compelled to, you know, my own selfish reasons, not only wanting to help this person figure out what the track is, but I want to know what that track is now. Yeah, that's, it sounds vaguely familiar, like the melody at least, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I want to immediately assume it's Game Boy Color specifically, but like that's the first <laughs> thing that comes to mind. And not because I recognize it, I, I know it's, I could, would just assume it's to a game I haven't played before. Um, mm-hmm. but there's a certain fidelity to the sound, uh, that makes me suspect like later Game Boy. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like later, like kind of like the Manabu uh, Namiki stuff, the kind of like, uh, that later, almost like uh, borderline proto chiptune, uh, what we call today, like LSDJ stuff. Um, especially kind of in that, uh, the work in the, the, the wave channel. So it, it's definitely not something from like. <laughs> 1991 you know yeah i, uh, it's I wouldn't probably expect like it to be. yeah so I mean, it's it's not that it's totally like demo scene out or anything you know it's not like the track's going mm-hmm. absolutely crazy but there's just enough niceness like vibrato on the melody all these little touches that m- make it feel like the game boy was more established and you're a bit further into the sound design for it so yeah um, absolutely yeah. i agree so patrick you mentioned earlier uh in the episode that you have kind of song you wanted to play uh, and we typically call this the song of the week, but then uh, we were just talking about it and we just realized that we don't do this weekly anymore. So I guess it's song of the month, technically. Yeah. Uh, so, so Patrick, you left us in suspense like, you know, 30 minutes ago. What is the song of the month? Okay. So uh, the song of the week or month uh, is there's actually arranged versions of several of the songs from LaGrange Point. We mentioned that there was a CD release of the soundtrack that came out in 1991. Uh, the first six tracks are like these special covers, essentially that Konami did, using like some live instruments combined with like synthesized voices. Um, some of them are really like kind of cheesy, I think. <laughs> uh, some of them are, are they're really cool at times though. Uh, so my favorite of this batch is uh, the cover of "Searching for the Promised Land." So we'll give that a listen. It's a it's a really interesting arrangement. It starts off with like more of a straight cover, and then kind of goes into its own sections. Um, and it's it's just really cool hearing Konami cover one of their songs back when it came out. Um, so thanks for listening. This has been Retro Game Audio.